Welcome to the Longevity Forum podcast during Longevity Week 2020. I am Defina Grafsipeni, co-founder of the Longevity Forum. Our theme for this year's forum is the age of resilience, and my guest today is Dr. Tara Swart. Tara is a neuroscientist, medical doctor, executive advisor, senior lecturer at MIT Sloan, and author of The Source, a best-selling book which has translations in 36 global territories. Tara is passionate about disseminated, simple, pragmatic neuroscience-based messages that change the way people live and work. Today, we do just that by exploring how to build mental resilience to face current and future challenges. Welcome, Tara. Lovely to have you as our guest. Thank you. Very excited to be here. I mentioned your book during the introduction, and I should probably say that it's a book I've read before the pandemic started, but which has been a really valuable companion throughout these unprecedented times. And my own copy has so many pages marked with a highlighter pen, and I've recommended it and bought it for so many friends. So I'm excited we'll be sharing some of those insights with our listeners. That's so lovely to hear. Thank you. And I have had quite a few messages from people saying that they've reread it during during lockdown. Let's see which bits of it we can crystallize for the podcast listeners here. Well, I thought we'd start with the life transitions theme, because in your career, you've been through several transitions, which you explain in your book. And it's something that we talk a lot about here in the forum, because we feel that the topic of life transitions is really important as uh, people's lifespan increases. So, you know, given the lifespan increases we've seen to date, and those that we are likely to see in the future, we think that this is definitely a topic that uh, people will be paying more attention to. So I was wondering, could you tell us what can people do to harness the power of the brain? And maybe we can touch on the concept of neuroplasticity to help them with those life transitions. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting, actually, that you me- you mentioned my career, because I left medicine and started up my neuroscience-based leadership development consultancy just because I wanted to do something different and a lot of other reasons that are in the book. But actually, now I look back and I think, if I just stayed doing the same job for the rest of my career, I wouldn't have had the benefits of neuroplasticity that I've got now. So neuroplasticity kind of works both ways. If you take on change and embrace change and try new things and you know do things differently, then you're actually helping your brain to grow and change and adapt to change. Equally, your brain is constantly molded and shaped by everything that it experiences. So everyone you meet, every memory you recall, every emotion that you experience, um, every conversation that you have. So I think now, given what everything that you've just said and the fact that people are not just living longer, but working for longer as well, that we sort of need to proactively bring things into our life that induce neuroplasticity because that keeps our brain flexible adaptable changing learning and um, one way of doing that obviously could be to make some career transitions it could be to go and live in different countries Um, but really it all comes down to continually learning and adapting not only because that induces neuroplasticity in your brain but also because you get global benefits of learning anything and it kind of works both ways. So the more you do different things, the easier it becomes. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I suppose change is good for the brain and, and being exposed to new situations and different situations and challenging situations, which uh, perhaps leads me also to, to the situation that we've all been facing over the past six months and which we're likely to face perhaps 
for the next uh, few months. And, you know, given the, the general uncertainty we see in the world, do you think that stress and trauma cause permanent changes to the brain? And can that trauma, I understand the change obviously helps with neuroplasticity uh, to get that into action, but can things like stress and trauma help us build resilience to adversity as well? Well, really good question. I mean, I was just thinking as you sort of summarized and, and segued into the next question that somebody like you completely gets that change is good for you and that we should expose ourselves to it. But actually, the brain doesn't really like change. So the brain would prefer for things to stay the same and actually sees anything new or different as a threat. So we have to make a really big effort to override that. Um, and that's why I said we need to be proactive about maybe changing careers or um, just bringing new things into our life. So not all change is stress, but I, I think, you know, given the current circumstances, you've asked a very important question about stress. So yes, acute stress can kill brain cells. And that can be, it can be an emotional stress, a physical stress, a mental stress, a spiritual stress, whatever it is. It can have either a temporary effect on the brain, but it absolutely is possible that the impact of that stress and the stress hormones in our blood that goes around the brain and the body can actually cause cell death, um, including in the brain. And it's just, this is a process called apoptosis. Now, we're, you know, this is so unprecedented because what we've mostly all experienced is a chronic low-grade stress. So some people might say, oh, I didn't really feel that stressed at all. I, you know, I got used to working from home. Maybe you know, they didn't have to do homeschooling. There may even be a perception that we're not under stress. But with this threat in the background and all the restrictions and changes that it's meant – Basically, everybody in the world is experiencing chronic low-grade stress at the moment. And Dafina, we don't actually know the answer to what that does to our brains, whether it builds up to a level that it can cause cell death or it always just stays below that threshold. It's definitely not doing us any good. You know, just some really easy ways to understand the effects of it is that when we have high levels of the stress hormone cortisol, it causes systemic dryness. So we become more dehydrated more easily. So if we're not really remembering to drink extra water, then you can get dry skin, dry hair, you can become constipated. And also cortisol disturbs our sleep. So a lot of people could have been experiencing sleep disturbance. And so you can see how if the body was running dry, and your sleep isn't as good, that that's compounding the factors that can, they're not optimal for your brain, put it that way. The other effect of cortisol, because it's a steroid hormone, is that we tend to put on weight around our middles. Now, this is a survival mechanism. So you may have noticed that your arms and legs aren't a different shape or size than they were before lockdown, but maybe you've stored a bit more fat around your belly. And that was our ancestors' way of storing fat so that if they went um, starvation, they could survive for longer and keep foraging and hunting. Obviously, in the modern day where we're experiencing more psychological and social stress, that's not an advantage to us, but it is still happening. No, it's interesting that one of the most watched uh, videos on YouTube is a seven-minute video to tackle belly fat at the moment. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, not a coincidence. But is it true, Tara, that you know, our brain has a negativity bias? And given that a lot of these challenges that we're facing now, you know, we're not facing them by choice. Is there anything that we can do to, and I know you talk a lot about mastering the emotions as being key to unlocking the power of the brain. 
is there any way we could turn this negativity into something more positive? And is there any way we can reconcile perhaps the emotional part of the brain with the rational part uh, to make sure that our brain is functioning optimally even during these unprecedented times? A really interesting and multifaceted conversation. So question. So I'll take that. I'll split it up into two halves. So the first thing that you asked about is this negativity bias of the brain, which is actually called loss aversion. So the psychological impact on the brain of losing something is 2 to 2.5 times as strong as gaining an equivalent reward. So the classic example of this is if you walked out to your car and you found out when you got back home that you'd dropped 10 pounds onto the street, then you'd be thinking about that and annoyed with yourself, probably for the rest of the day till you, you know, even when you're lying in bed to go to sleep. If you'd walked out to your car and found 10 pounds on the street, you might keep it, you might give it to charity, but you'd have forgot, you'd forget about it very quickly because it doesn't seem that the impression on your brain isn't that great. So what we do because of this loss aversion is that we go to great lengths to try to avoid what we perceive to be any kind of loss. And we don't necessarily take risks that might lead to a big win because we're worried about what, you know, the consequences of failure or it just not going, it not being worth the effort. So yeah, we do have to make an effort to stay happy, stay healthy. And, and you know, I'm talking specifically about the times that we're in now. In one way, you could say that fear of, of you know catching a disease might encourage you to to stay isolated and socially distanced but it's very complex what people actually perceive as a loss so loss of freedom loss of being able to be social loss of being able to connect with your work teams in the same way you know all of these things will be competing in the brain as potential losses or gains so I have sort of suggested that something like journaling during lockdown or or restriction times could be really helpful to help people really raise their awareness of the emotions that they go through and what they feel that they're missing out on in this you know unprecedented change circumstance and then you asked about emotions and logic so i really like to help people to move away from this idea that there's a logical part of the brain and an emotional part of the brain the brain is way more complex and dynamic a system than that. So it's really more about pathways in the brain that interact with each other and have cascade effects on on the rest of the brain and the body. And so emotion and logic are the two that are always talked about, but I actually talk about six different ways of thinking that correlate to pathways that move around the brain, like from back to front, front to back, left to right, right to left, and bottom to top, top to bottom. And The top one is mastering your emotions, and I'll come back to that because it's so important at the moment. The next one is about understanding the brain-body connection. So understanding something like that if you're under chronic stress, that you may put on more fat around your belly and that there isn't an exercise video out there that's going to shift that fat if you're not dealing with the stress that's causing it. The next one is trusting your intuition, which is very much related to the brain-body connection. The next one is make good decisions, which is logical thinking, then staying motivated and resilient, which is so relevant right now. And then creativity, which is not the traditional sense of the word, but it's about using all of your brain power to create the real world outcomes that you want. And so the emotional piece is that essentially, in a, in a way, 
we are all going through a form of grief and we've actually cycled through that several times already since March. And there's a classic model of grief called the Kubler-Ross grief or change curve. And it basically says that anytime something happens that you didn't expect or you didn't want, you go through this roller coaster of emotions that starts with shock, anger, and denial, then bargaining, then dips down to depression, and then comes up towards acceptance and responsibility and moving forward. But I said right at the beginning of lockdown that we would go through this several times and that people who were isolating together would go through it at different rates. So you know, really understanding what you're feeling emotionally and the factors that you can bring into place to try to regulate those emotions is so important. So whether it's physical exercise, yoga or meditation, making sure that you're staying connected to your friends and family, journaling, gratitude lists, there are lots of things that we can do, but we kind of need to know what they are for us. So for example, I keep bringing up the cortisol, but it's just so relevant here. One of the things that happens when you have high circulating levels of cortisol is that the magnesium in your body gets leached up, gets used up so quickly that you couldn't possibly eat enough nuts and seeds and leafy greens to replace it. So having a bath with magnesium salts in it or using a magnesium spray on your body or taking a capsule, they're also important factors in self-care that can help to future-proof us against the, both the acute and chronic stresses that we may have to face from now on. I think this area of the body and brain connection is really, really fascinating. And uh, you touched on sleep as well, which is um, something I wanted to ask you about, because it's obviously a major lack of sleep is uh, a major risk for age-related diseases, but especially Alzheimer's. And I was wondering whether you could expand a little bit on the importance of sleep in terms of brain health. Sure. So sleep is important in terms of just regenerating our cells and processing our memories and emotions but specifically where you mentioned Alzheimer's that the reason that they're connected is from some Nobel Science Prize winning research that showed there's a cleansing system in the brain called the glymphatic system so it's like the lymphatic system in the body but it's made up of glial cells and we used to think that this was a passive process of just sort of washing out the brain overnight, but it's actually a very active process of forcibly flushing out the plaques and toxins that build up. And when they get to a critical point, they are the pathology of dementing diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. That process takes seven hours, and that's why we recommend that you're in bed for seven to nine hours so the process doesn't get interrupted. If it regularly gets interrupted, you are bringing forward the age at which you might show dementia symptoms later in life. So sleep is an interesting one because it's not just about the length of the sleep, it's about the quality of the sleep as well. So having your room as dark and quiet and at the right temperature as possible is very conducive to sleep, not eating too close to sleep time, not having too much alcohol, particularly close to sleep time, and not having caffeine. Really, for a good 12 hours before you would want to go to bed, the the quarter life of caffeine is 12 hours. So that means that if you have some coffee at 10 a.m., then a quarter of that caffeine is still circulating around your brain at 10 p.m. And then we don't really know why, but we know that there's an additional benefit from having regular sleep and wake times. So it's not just about getting eight hours a night. It's about having the time that you go to bed and wake up stay consistent throughout the week. And all the factors, sleep is probably, you know, the, the top one, but of all the factors that contribute to resilient aging, 
are uh, a nutrition dense diet that's mostly plant based, staying hydrated, not being sedentary, and having some tools and techniques for reducing stress in your life, which I've already mentioned. And additionally, those are things that optimize your brain, but additionally, for, for aging well, having positive, social, meaningful relationships in your life is hugely important. And if you really work on addressing all of those factors by the time you're in your late 30s to early 40s, you can even reduce the cognitive decline that tends to start around the age of 70. And it really sort of brings us full circle, Dafina, because with what you were saying about we're all living longer, we're working longer, we might want to reinvent ourselves we absolutely need to be focusing on preventing and reducing cognitive decline. And that means everything from the research that goes into treating diseases like Alzheimer's to all the sorts of therapies, everything from medication to meditation to talking therapy that addresses mental health problems. And then just those lifestyle factors that we can take responsibility for ourselves that mean we're more likely to stay fit and healthy like you always say, it's not just how long we live, but it's the quality of the life that we have. Yeah. So it's not really, there are no shortcuts to, to brain agility. Uh, there. It, it takes a lot of kind of focus and dedication and, and being, as you said, aware of what the environment is really doing to us and, and our brain. And I was just wondering, Tara, just as a final question, whether I could ask you, just looking into the future say in the next 10 years and you know where we hear and hear and read a lot about the rise of machines and artificial intelligence and what that might mean for our brains do you envisage a future where maybe things like brain implants can restore or extend human capabilities does that area of research excite you or do you think it is premature i wouldn't even say it's in the future it's happening right now it's happening already i'm so excited by it that i do keep quite a close eye on that research so if you think about it We've had prosthetic limbs for absolutely ages. We've had pacemakers, de internal defibrillators. And there are already some implants that can be used for people that have untreatable epilepsy in the brain. Aside from that, there's a lot of exciting research going on in terms of being able to actually produce digital images of dreams and memories. There is research going on into creating art just with the power of your thought of things like telekinesis, so moving things around with the power of your thought. That's, you know, that's already being worked on. People who are paralyzed have been given brain implants and neural stimulators that mean not just they can walk again, but that they can play football, do Ironman competitions. That we're, we're thinking about things like being able to upload consciousness and an entire person's memory. So, for example, there could be a hologram of Winston Churchill where the AI has every speech that he ever made, every book that he ever wrote, and you could have a conversation with him, and it'd be like a holographic library of, of people who've existed before. I'm sure I have more things like this, but I'm, yeah, I'm basically obsessed with this sort of human-AI hybrid that I'm sure we're all going to be not too far in the future. No, I'm really, I'm really glad you, you've got a an optimistic uh, view on these developments and and it actually especially if they can help address some of the issues and improve the quality of life for people that that that's obviously excellent and on that optimistic note tara i would like to thank you for joining us today and i uh, hope we have the chance to hear you and see you in person soon thank you so much yeah it'd be lovely to see you again
This broadcast has been brought to you by the Longevity Forum. As part of Longevity Week 2020, we are very grateful to our sponsors, Juvenescence, Bill Dickinson, and Burnbray. For more podcasts, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.